Global consumerism is a $40 trillion a year phenomenon, which makes it the largest, most predictable investment opportunity on the planet. Who are the prime beneficiaries of global consumption trends? Mega brands. Welcome to the Mega Brands podcast series. I'm your host, Eric Clark. In this podcast, we explore mega trends through the lens of a global investor with the ultimate goal of identifying the most relevant, most innovative brands that are best positioned to become what I call mega brands. These are the brands that are customer obsessed, have a corporate culture of innovation and self-disruption, create products and services that are in high demand, that exhibit strong brand love from customers, are serving a global opportunity and appeal to multiple demographic groups. What's the reward for a company that meets these criteria? More revenue, more cash flow, higher market share, and the potential to reach the trillion dollar club. Please enjoy our next episode of Mega Brands. Eric Clark is the portfolio manager for the Rational Dynamic Brands Fund in conjunction with his partners at AccuVest Global Advisors. All opinions expressed by Eric and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinions of AccuVest Global Advisors or Rational Funds. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. Clients of the Brands Fund or AccuVest may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. Hey, everybody. It's Eric Clark, Global Brands uh, Portfolio Manager and Brand Evangelist. Today is Monday, July 25th, after the market closed. And today I'm going to do something a little bit different. I'm, I'm actually going to take a deep dive into a particular brand that's in my brand's 200 index. And it's actually been in the brand's index just this year. We took it out three years ago because we uh, all the work that we do on brand and brand relevancy showed us that it was losing relevancy and it kind of got through a threshold that doesn't allow us to keep it anymore. And that that was a pretty good, uh, that's pretty pretty good analysis because the brand in question, Under Armour, is down about 85% or so from the highs, I think it was late 15 or early 2016. So I wanted to do this deep dive strictly on the athleisure industry, the some of the other players like a Nike, Adidas, Lululemon, um, and then, and then talk specifically though about Under Armour. Uh, why Under Armour? Well, because it's either a value trap, and thus far it's been a value trap, and or it's a raging opportunity with much more upside than any of the other names uh, might even be combined, just because it's so depressed. Uh, it's about a four billion dollar company now, with five and a half or five and a quarter billion in revenue. So. It has seemingly, you know, on the surface, it looks a bit like a cheap brand that's still, you know, doing, you know, well in an industry that's very important to consumers. But when a brand market cap goes below its total sales for the year, that's usually an indication that the brand just doesn't matter much anymore. Might still be an opportunity to generate revenue as it as it feeds into important consumer spending categories. But from a brand relevancy uh, in the industry and from an investment perspective, it's usually just a terrible place to be. So I wanted to 
to you know run this through a, a bunch of different uh, a bunch of different viewpoints to see if it's an actual you know value stock that's going to stay that way for a long period of time or if it if there's just a raging table pounding opportunity uh, full disclosure we do not own the stock now because i haven't really seen enough catalysts to warrant getting engaged with a stock that could be a value trap uh, certainly the 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 operations have been you know moving in the right direction they cut out of a lot of those acquisitions they've been very expensive and painful and a drag and a drag on operating metrics they have uh one of the best inventory situations in the industry much better than uh, than than lulu and uh and nike and probably uh, adidas i don't have much information on adidas it's harder to get that um, but they've reduced skews in a meaningful way. They have taken a page out of Nike's playbook and are culling a lot of the undifferentiated, unproductive wholesale partner relationships and are favoring much more of a DTC direct to consumer uh, relationship where they can have a direct consumer with us and then use that data to help us you know, do more purchasing and get more engaged with the brand and, and, and use more of their, their products across different verticals. So, I mean, on the operations side, I think they're, 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 they're clearly doing what they need to do to dig out of the problems that they had uh, when they were a big growth stock in, you know, let's call it 2013 through the peak of 2016. Um, but it hasn't quite filtered through into the metrics yet. And it certainly hasn't, change the fact that I think the conclusion of this exercise will be that the brand just isn't nearly as relevant as it once was. And if if you're going to regain your former glory, you have to get relevant again. And you can. Um, it, it's just in my experience, a lot of times, you know, this is like this is like admitting that your kids aren't very good at sports or or whatever. Sometimes if it's your baby and you and you work there, you you just you just don't have the heart to do the difficult things or sometimes even admit that there's a real problem with your brand. And if you can't do that, then you're probably not going to turn things around. So uh, I'm going to look at this thing from a, a, a bunch of different angles. First, you know, I'll go through a, a little bit of a brief overview of the brand and its history and their business trajectory and kind of where we are now. Then I'll move into the current stock versus the current brand relevancy rating relative to my brand relevancy scoring system, which is part quantitative, part qualitative. Then I'll move into the brand and you know its comparable peer group. And just to give some perspective on some of the operating metrics like revenue and free cash flow and gross margins and operating margins and inventory, things like that, to get a feel for where we are versus the peer group and on an absolute basis. Then I'll move into, you know, from a stock perspective, what actually drives a stock higher? You know, it's more buyers than sellers. I'll, I'll give up the answer right here. But what drives an interest in buying the stock is directly tied to the brand and the products and the innovation and the operating metrics and how well the business is being run and how you know 
how smart acquisitions are or or what what the capital allocation decisions of the managers are. So all those things are interconnected. But in order for to get to get the stock from being down 85% to moving in the in the right direction, you need to solve for a couple of the reasons why somebody might not buy the stock, because clearly there's more sellers than buyers at the current time. We'll, we'll then go into a little bit of a business x-ray, looking at the, you know, who these brands serve, whether they're wholesale or DTC focused, or, you know, what categories they tend to play in, um, what demographics, you know, here and around the world, et cetera, so we can kind of compare and contrast. And then I really want to talk about what really makes it, what's the definition of a mega brand? Because I think if you look at, look at your business through the lens of these factors, you can then solve for some of those factors in your business plans. And then lastly, just some conclusions and observations about, about the brand Under Armour's health, whether some are fixable or some aren't. I'm, I'm going to get a little bit into the, the board uh, of, of the, the board there, I think needs a complete cleanse. Um, but that's neither here nor there. Um, you know, this is just one man's opinion. I'm sure everyone of the people that are on the board are there for a particular purpose. But I think that's one of just a, a many different ways that the, the, the company can really kind of turn itself around for the better. So looking forward to this, uh, this deep dive, hope you enjoy it. And so let's first just talk about the history of this company, the brief overview. Under Armour was a very popular and edgy brand right right from the start. I mean, they grew incredibly fast when public in 2005. I think it the stock was up about 92% on the IPO day, which was unheard of back then. You know, Kevin Plank founded the company in 1996 at 24 years old. And like most good ideas and companies, it started with an idea that needed to be expressed, a problem that not that needed to be solved. Um, you know, as a football player at the University of Maryland, go Terps, I'm a Terp myself. I graduated three or four years ahead of Kevin. Um, he he noticed and and was, you know, annoyed by the cotton shirts that you wear under your shoulder pads and your uniform and how, uh, you know, a, as we sweat, the thing gets super heavy. It doesn't breathe really well. So he he set out to create this moisture wicking synthetic fabric and then went door to door, you know, old school story, you know, a lot of product in the back of your car going door to door to try to sell your wares, uh, you know, gave it to some friends on the team and coaches, et cetera. And that was the beginning of the story. So he, he created a important category that even Nike and Adidas did not have and and that was his way into this uh, into this industry. So incredibly strong growth. I mean, I suspect that Nike and maybe others probably tried to buy Under Armour in the early days, but uh, you know, obviously, I'm not sure. Uh, but I suspect you know, lots of big guys came knocking with the with the growth and the name that they built for themselves. 250 million in revenues year one <clears throat> around the IPO, ramping up to you know just over five billion. Uh, over, you know, in into 2021. So it's still from a revenue perspective, one of the largest brands in retail, and just personal, just a personal pet peeve from a branding perspective. Um, 
I probably wouldn't have named my company the 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 category that I was trying to exploit because you know that's that's a little bit like Amazon not understanding am where Amazon was heading. You know, Amazon started as an online bookstore. So if they would Amazon be the Amazon they are today, if they if they name the the company books.com, probably not. But Jeff Bezos clearly had an idea of where this company could head. And you never know exactly what turns are going to happen. But but regardless, that's just a personal note from a branding perspective. But, you know, Under Armour then was a great brand for the thing that put it on the map. I'm not sure Under Armour is the brand that we want to turn to today, though, particularly because the brand has lost a lot of relevancy and, and it doesn't have a lot of brand heat. So something needs to change with the brand. We'll get into that a little bit later. But let's 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 talk a little bit more about the growth. You know, 250 million in revenues in 2005, going up to 856 in 09. 3.96 billion year end uh, 2015 and that's where the stock peaked. So the 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 company kind of flatlined from a from a financial metrics perspective after that, but the stock was incredibly expensive trading it, you know, gosh, 80 or 90 or 100 times uh you know, had 100 PE on on the thing. Um and I, I think it was at about 23 or 4 or 5 billion at the peak. So it was a very expensive stock growth stock that started to meet its ceiling of growth. And as you know, when you're an expensive growth stock and your growth slows down, starts to decelerate, growth investors leave all at once and they leave skid marks typically. We're seeing it in the market today with, I mean, Shopify down 70 or 80%, et cetera. So it's really hard to sustain exceptionally high growth for any sector, let alone for, for retail. And they, they probably exacerbated their problems. And I, and I give, I give Kevin Plank some real credit because, you know, Under Armour's brand was incredibly strong when they started to do a bunch of the deals that ultimately proved to be, be very bad ideas for, for the profitability of the business and adding way too much leverage at the wrong time. But, you know, when you are on top and, you know, you have good profitability and good growth and the market is willing to let you, you know, take some risk. I mean, he went big and he went bold with a lot of these big deals that he, that he and his team, I'm sure thought, listen, if I'm, if I'm going to do this deal with Notre Dame, and that's an incredibly popular college franchise, or I'm going to do it with UCLA, et cetera, that is going to filter through into more sales of my products and, and I'll pay for those deals and then some. So kudos to him for being so aggressive. It was just, you know, kind of one of those things, wrong, right decision to be bold, probably way too much leverage on the business at absolutely the wrong time. So if you look at some of these deals, you know, uh, 2014, they do the Notre Dame deal with uniform supplying them uniforms and equipment. It's a 10-year deal. At the time, it was the largest deal in college history. I think in 2013, the big the big problem was they they decided to get into connected fitness, digital health, etc. Uh, they essentially spent a massive amount of money to buy 
members to buy eyeballs to buy people that were signed up to track their fitness and all their statistics with the idea that that you could cross sell which is a difficult difficult thing so they spent 150 million to buy map my fitness the app 475 million which is an ungodly amount of money uh to to buy my fitness pal and then 85 million for endomondo so they spent about i don't know 600 million bucks to you know, to get into a vertical and they could have created something from scratch and had an incredibly strong brand, uh, probably for 20 million bucks. So they were spending an awful lot of money for customer acquisition that they likely never could have monetized given the prices that they paid. So uh, obviously that's in hindsight, but even at the time I was like, well, particularly the MyFitnessPal, that is an awful lot of money to spend for, for that kind of business. Um, 2016, they do the UCLA deal, 15 years, 250, 280 million bucks, largest shoe and apparel deal in history. You know, these are high profile college teams. So I, I understand where they were headed, but man, oh man, a lot of money for this stuff. Um, and then in 2016, they took a 53,000 square foot space on fifth Avenue, uh, the old FAO Schwartz building. And, and, you know, I, I don't know what happened to, to, to that and, and how much it costs, but Under Armour, I don't think is a brand that should be on Fifth Avenue. That's just my own personal opinion. Um, and maybe it wasn't a big drag on finances. Um, I, I was just a little bit shocked at that, even when it came out. December 2016, they do the Major League Baseball on-field uniform deal ended up not happening and and uh and nike ended up taking that up uh and, and 2013 they signed steph curry um with a contract and then extended it into 2024 they they sign other you know athletes like jordan spieth for golf so i mean they've done a great job particularly in finding athletes and seeing something in athletes uh, before they got incredibly uh popular and incredibly expensive and i'm sure that's been paying dividends steph and and jordan in particular for basketball in golf. So, you know, overall massive growth in the brand, in the brand relevancy and in revenues uh, with this enormous push in the sports and, and performance focused products versus the mass market again. And we'll talk about this a little bit later in a few other sections. I still think the performance product line is very niche, right? What percentage of the total population is heavy performance you know, focused buyers, it's, it's much smaller. So, you know, it's great to plant your flag and make your brand in that category because, you know, the masses tend to look up to sports figures. They tend to look up to superior innovation products and companies, et cetera, but they really need to pivot and pivot hard into mass market and in what I consider to be lifestyle apparel. I mean, they are by far from a revenue perspective an apparel company over a footwear company. And uh, Nike is the exact opposite, by far a footwear company that sells apparel. And between Adidas and Nike, the footwear business and, and all these niche players like On and Allbirds and Hoka, et cetera, it's just a crowded, crowded competitive space. And it's a heck of a lot more technically hard to make great shoes than it is to make apparel. So let's let's pivot hard into, you know, being a lifestyle apparel brand and, you know, kind of with a sports mentality. And then, then 
I think we have some really interesting revenue opportunities. We still have to fix the brand though. And we'll talk about that. So, you know, again, the company just got way over its skis at, at, a, at, a, at the growth, you know, part of its, its cycle, probably to try to continue keeping the stock and the valuation going higher. And, and sometimes you just make, you, you just make the wrong decision at absolutely the wrong time. And now the stock's down 85%. And I, and I would love to get engaged with something because the value buyer in me always looks for distressed ideas that have a real interesting pivot catalyst. And I'm not quite seeing it yet on the brand. I really need to see something on the brand, but that's just a bit of a history on, on where they came from and where they are now. All right, let's talk about the stock. Um, cause that's where I spend most of my time as a PM and an analyst and a, and a brand relevancy investor. So, uh, obviously I've talked about it before the stock basically went straight up from, for, you know, from 09 after the, the 08, 09 debacle, um, into the, the late 2015 peak, it outperformed everybody. I, you know, Under Armour up 1,860%. Only the only one close was Lulu up, uh, 1100%. Nike was up 485 Adidas just really kind of sucked wind a little bit up 200% and the, and the S&P was up almost 200% and the NASDAQ was up 295%. So, I mean, that was Under Armour's time and then it's down 85% or so since the peak when Nike's up 87%, Lulu's up almost 500%. Adidas is still struggling um, half the mar half the S&P over that period of time almost. So it was kind of a tale of two worlds. And, you know, surely if, if, if I were to tell you a stock peaked in late 2015, 2016, and has since dropped 85%, you would say, well, geez, revenues probably dropped off a cliff. Well, no, actually, uh, at the stock's peak, revenues were 3.9 billion. And they're about five and a half billion at the end of 2021. So the stock drops 85%, but revenues go up about 30, 35%. So <laughs> that one makes you scratch your head just a little bit. I'm sure the people at Under Armour are scratching their head at, at the move that this, this company has had. Um, super expensive stock, very high expectations, almost at the level where you generally a retailer hits its kind of ceiling, not everybody, but, but most, um, eight, I think it was about eight times sales and a 90 PE. So, you know, there was a lot of reason to try to keep this train going. And certainly there was a lot on the line if it didn't. And, and you see what happened. Margins probably were, were struggling, particularly on, all the operating leverage that they put on the business with all these deals. So to me, the, the real issue with Under Armour has been all these major long-term commitments right as growth was stalling. You know, I, th I think SG&A as a percentage of revenue was like 300% at the peak. So, you know, that's a, that's a big number to begin with, particularly when your company kind of stagnates from a, from a revenue perspective, free cash flow over that period of time was pretty erratic. Operating margins were pretty erratic, obviously because they put a lot of leverage on the business and stress on the business. And when you're two thirds of the business being wholesale, which is lower margins and somewhat brand negative, you know th the stock could certainly struggle over that period of time. And you know, but if you look where the stock is now, 
the stock is back to levels in the first half of 2011. And for, for perspective, 2011 revenues were about a billion and a half. They're five point, you know, five and a half currently. And it's also back to a level where the stock was in at the peak in, in 2007 when revenues were 606 million. So, I, I mean, e either the stock is egregiously undervalued, which I do think that it is if they can turn a, a few things around, um, or it's just in that typical retail stock death spiral where you're just going to stagnate, you know, stagnate with your market cap lower than your annual revenues, which is obviously, there's a lot of examples of that. They all look cheap on the surface, but when you look at them, none of them are incredibly and highly brand relevant and, and are more just, oh, I need something and I'm going to go get it, but I don't really have much loyalty and it's mostly driven by low prices. That's generally not a place you want to be for for most retail and i i think that's where where under armor is currently all right so let's let's next do a little x-ray on the actual business <clears throat> and you know the wholesale the retail male versus female etc cetera, etc cetera. all right let's uh let's look at some comparables under armor nike lulu adidas in particular uh i mean Trailing revenues for Under Armour, $5.7 respectable. Nike, $46 billion, the big 800-pound gorilla in the room. Lulu at $6.7 and growing much faster than everybody else, uh, uh, with a lot of room internationally in particular, with a lot of room on the male side when they skew female. Uh, Adidas, 24 and, and change on the billion side, so another big, big uh, brand not growing very fast and struggling particularly in china but if you look at you know let's look at the five-year revenue growth and earnings growth so i mean revenue growth for under armor has only been three percent so you know you can't have a a crazy valuation and grow at three percent a year clearly that's a problem for the stock and it's down big nike's only grown you know revenues by six percent they've just gotten a lot more operating efficiencies and the margins have come up as they've distance from wholesale and focused on digital and DTC, et cetera. Lulu is 21% revenue growth for five years. Adidas is only 4%. So Adidas has a big problem too. They just have a, they just have a big base and um, the ship is, uh, is a lot more stable from an earnings per share growth under armor up 11%, uh, you know, a kager Nike only 8%, Lulu 27%, Adidas 18. So, you know, the and then the operating margins obviously Under Armour seven and change Nike fourteen and change Lulu twenty one probably needs to come down which is potential problem for the stock and then Adidas around uh, Under Armour's at at eight percent so you know Adidas is very likely a potential value trap too um, free cash flow has been non-existent but that's now changing so if you look at the trailing twelve you know Under Armour at least has three hundred ninety two million of free cash flow so they're they have a buyback in place nike's got about six billion they have a big buyback lulu with you know half a billion or so generating cash and and adidas 2.3 so the big change is that under armor is getting their act together from an operational perspective and they still need to focus sell less and charge more that just takes time if your brand doesn't have a lot of brand heat uh looking at apparel versus footwear 
I mean, Under Armour is a direct mirror opposite generally of Nike. Nike is a big footwear brand that does apparel. A lot of it, arguably, but but certainly the skew is footwear over apparel. Under Armour is complete opposite, about 67% in apparel and 20-some percent in footwear. And, and Lulu obviously is mostly apparel. And, and Lulu is a wonderful example of getting the premium you know, multiple for a premium product with high brand love, you know, the market cap on, on Lulu is gosh, I don't know, 30 billion or so now. And I think it used to be, you know, 45 billion versus Under Armour with not a lot of ability to get premium premiumization with a, you know, a 4 billion market cap. So the, the, the other big issue obviously is wholesale. I mean, Nike has been distancing themselves and cutting a major part of their undifferentiated, unproductive wholesale. Under Armour has also done that, but but Under Armour just doesn't have the brand relevancy to cut too much of that wholesale because they're too reliant on it for overall revenues. Although the stock's down 85%. So, you know, I suspect if they cut, if they got even more aggressive and, and came out with a real plan to drive premiumization, and drive more digital and drive more engagement through the app, the market would reward them, but they, the market also has to have faith that they have a plan. And Under Armour's had a lot of plans over the years. They've had a lot of, you know, misfires and constant trying to re-evolve and, and re reinvent themselves. So the market is in a, you know, wait and see kind of mode. Lulu obviously has you know little to no wholesale it's all through stores all through the through the digital and the website um and and that that has been that has served them served them very well from a nike to to under armor perspective and i'll tell you why i'm i'm zeroing in on this in a second you know north america for under armor's a two roughly two-thirds of the business whereas nike is much more global adidas is much more global and lulu is getting more global so you know, Under Armour, whether they have focused on it or not, I, I don't remember on any calls if they have really talked about where they want to focus and grow um, specifically. I mean, I know they they want to grow everywhere. They want to grow with every demographic. They want to grow across the world. They want to get higher margins with higher premium products. That's great. But the reality is the brand and the brand heat and the brand awareness probably doesn't allow them to do some of the things that they want to do. And, you know, the, the China thing, I want to spend a few seconds on China because everybody obviously wants to spend more time and, and get more exposure in China. China has historically been a big market for athleisure and American sports and sports brands, but that's changing. Um, it, it might be a slow moving train, but China's government does not want U.S. in particular brands to be as relevant and powerful as they have once been. The supply chain issues have been a mess. COVID certainly shed a light on the supply chain problems and the, and the risks there with these COVID lockdowns. So it's okay, in my opinion, to have some exposure and endeavor to, to, to be a relevant brand in China. But I Man, knowing that that Nike in particular is so strong, plus you have Li Ning and a bunch of other Chinese brands that are really kind of getting more popular. 
to, to spend too much time and money on China, knowing that China just doesn't want U.S. companies to be that powerful uh, and and maybe just focus more on Asia X China as the biggest driver plus Latin America plus Europe to me is a much more sound decision for an Under Armour because you know as we've talked about generally speaking Nike Lulu and Adidas take up so much of the air in the room that all of the other brands including Under Armour are kind of fighting for scraps and and fighting for scraps is not uh, one, it's not ideal, and two, it's not a way to get good premium products. But you know, from a getting your house in order, Under Armour absolutely has been making super, super strides on that. Getting rid of you know a ton of their undifferentiated wholesale, um, cutting SKUs, they probably need some more. Getting inventory back in a, in a much better position, finally uh, generating some free cash flow and and, and initiating a buyback. I. You know, it's tough when the stock's down 85%, it's probably smart that you're buying back stock. But if you're trying to really turn a ship around, there's a lot of money to be spent on branding and marketing and new innovation and products and expansion in, in, in appropriate markets and maybe building some more differentiated Under Armour stores or, you know, having the Rock Project have their own stores. Whatever that is, is going to cost a lot of money. So, they need to balance out the growth initiatives with the actual taking advantage of the buybacks that could be accretive if they can really get growth um, in the right direction. But but clearly they need to to focus on that premiumization. And that's just it's tough. It's tough to do when your brand isn't really that hot and really cool and, and relevant as it once was. So, you know, as Simeon Siegel from BMO talked about in our in our last podcast, you know, a lot of these retailers typically hit that ceiling two to three million, two to three billion, excuse me. Um, and, and if you have a whole, a big wholesale business, you can get up to five or six billion. Under Armour's there, even Lulu's there. I think Lulu can push through probably slower, uh, which could have an impact on the stock given the valuation that it currently has. Um, but but management is is clearly doing the right thing on the operations side of the side of the ledger what they're doing on the brand and the brand heat side isn't as clear to me and to me that's the most important thing that's going to allow them to get to the next level so let's also talk about where you know what under armor's core client is core customer you know the brand skews much more male uh nike and nike is much more balanced lulu clearly skews much more female uh, who controls 85% of the, the household wallet. So that's a pretty good thing too. But the the barbell of where Under Armour skews isn't particularly as ideal as it could be. They tend to skew younger with lower income or older, that 50 to 64 male range, which, you know, AKA isn't necessarily that fashionable, that brand focus and that willing to go premium unless there's some really sexy stuff. You know, the uh, and I found this myself, I, I want to buy more Under Armour other than the base layer stuff that I have and maybe some cheaper, you know, under uh, cheap underwear or or under your gym shorts. I, I really haven't been able to get there mentally. Part of it is because I'm a fairly fit guy and most of their shirts are really baggy around the waist. So they're, they're, they seem to be much more skewed towards the dad bod than than the the active 
person. And so I, I would almost want to see them create, allow consumers on their app and on their website to self-assess. Here's kind of pick the body that you have currently. We can aspire to having a different body, but if you're looking for things, let, let tell us what you, what you are right now. And we're going to point you in the right direction for the right apparel and the right shoes, et cetera, et cetera. I know they have some tools on the website and in the app, but I think that functionality could could get a lot better that the, I don't think most brands allow consumers to self-assess and then connect them to the appropriate things as much as they should that is a huge huge selling tool in my opinion and it builds real good loyalty and rapport with a consumer so remember you know the customer perception of Under Armour is that it's not a brand that's generally worth paying a premium for. In most cases, there are a few exceptions, probably for the Steph Curry stuff. And I think they're doing pretty good in golf. And I think they're doing pretty good um, on the base layer as well as, as on the Project Rock stuff. So uh, until you do a complete rebrand and and really drive a lot of messaging and spend a lot of money getting that message out, it's just going to be harder and much more niche focused on the premium part of it. My opinion is that Under Armour needs to pivot really hard away from the, the, the fitness and the athlete focus much more than they have and into the full everyday lifestyle apparel and street clothes market with a very edgy, very loud approach. Um, you know, get all of us to, to, you know, get our inner gangster, if you will, to, to really connect with this Under Armour or some new brand name, I think it probably should be a little separate from Under Armour, whether it's UA or or Rock or, or something brand new. Um, build this edgy brand and add a few key edgy loud skews just as a start to get people, make, make it premium, make it limited skew, um, and make it and make it really important and and loud and and let us psychologically connect to the brand because there are billions and billions and billions of dollars to scrape away from some of the you know low brand heat low differentiation everyday lifestyle apparel. I mean, Skechers has six billion in in revenue. Asics three and a half billion. Wolverine worldwide two and a half billion on the footwear. There's a lot of of money you can scrape away from those. Um, and then, geez, when you look at apparel, there's just a ton of just blah brands that still do a ton of revenue. Urban Outfitters uh, does a big business. It does skew probably more female so that um, there's a maybe a little bit less opportunity until you can really build your female, um, your female sales up, which again, in my opinion, they're actually creating some really um, sexy and good-looking stuff for females. So the designers there are, in my opinion, doing a pretty good job. But American Eagle, five billion in sales to take from Abercrombie, just has been dying for years. Has still has a billion in revenue. VF Corp, with some of their silly brands, you know, North Face and etc. To me, Vans is the most important brand. If Vans was was a separate company, I'd probably own that company. But they got 12 billion in in revenue. Columbia Sportswear at four and a half billion. Gap, the mother of all dead brands other than Athleta at 16 billion. Buckle even has a billion in in, in sales. So I mean there is a ton of money that 
Under Armour could take away in the apparel business, which is clearly what their their focus has been historically and, and, and is a much less crowded space, particularly on the everyday lifestyle apparel uh, side of the ledger. So for me, why not really spend much more time there um, to get some some new brand heat because the ceiling can be much higher because we all need everything from street shoes to socks to jeans to cool shorts um, to cool shirts, et cetera, baseball caps, uh, other accessories, uh, along with all of the things that they do on the, you know, on the sports side with basketball and lacrosse and baseball and football, et cetera, et cetera. So to me, that's probably the biggest opportunity in a, in a category that's not nearly as crowded for Under Armour to start really building a new brand, an edgier, louder brand for much bigger revenues that can drive the market cap much higher than it is currently. And, and I, if I see some evidence to, of that, and I like some of the stuff that they're doing, that would, that would allow me to make the decision to, to, you know, stick my toes in the water with the stock. So let's move on to the next category, which is um, exactly what is the definition of a mega brand? Because if you kind of you build a framework around your brand with some of these attributes and then just execute and put your head down, you have a, the, a much bigger opportunity to get a much bigger expanded uh, market cap. Uh, with a much bigger, uh, you know, total addressable market. So let's get into that one. And it's analysis that I use a lot for my brands. Just a quick word on the Under Armour site. I, I, I think, you know, I've spent a lot of time going through the site, going through all the sections of the site, apparel, footwear, men's, women, boys, girls. There's so much friction from me acting, I, I think the site probably needs a complete redesign just to allow people again to self-diagnose quickly. I'm a big fan of images and pictures. So if I if I identify with The Rock or Jordan Spieth or, or Steph Curry or whoever, I wanna be able to go quickly, click on their picture, go into a, a filtering system that allows me what part of, of that world that I'm interested in uh, and again, maybe even self-diagnose or self-assess with with me and my body type, et cetera, to drive me into more product stuff. Now, I, I understand that Under Armour probably wants to be the brand with Rock being a sub-brand and Spieth being, you know, an athlete that's driving the 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 golf brand. But, you know, when you pick a a, a person a personality like rock you your their brand is much more important than your brand steph curry's brand is much bigger than under armor's brand so you, you either don't do that and don't enable other people with a brand bigger than yours to um to to be successful and enhance that brand and you're you're just at that point you're just a service provider right again that's that's great business for you, but I don't necessarily know that it enhances your brand, but you're, you're already going down a path like that. So, so lean into that, in my opinion, with, with, you know, if I'm, if I look at project rock in particular, it really resonates with me. Um, and I think that it needs a ton more focus and it seems to be buried in the site. You know, I, I think there's probably obviously some key man risk 
to to that that kind of of focus um so i would broaden out to me the rock is just a symbol of what he stands for and and he is obviously the greatest character for that message that i can think of but it would be great to see more people join the rock you know in some sort of a collective that also live the life and the, and had the belief system that the rock has because now you can get so many people to join a movement and be a part of that and and not have it just be the rock this is much bigger than the rock the rock is a great cheerleader for this movement but get people to aspire to this sports mentality that just win mentality because then you have the makings of some some real brand loyalty there i love how edgy and motivational the message is um i i wish more of the the messages with with under armor were were very edgy and very loud a lot of the designs were much more loud i i think that's how you make a splash in the market that, that that's how under armor built its brand and i think it's how under armor can reinvigorate its brand um and, and in particularly using that sports mentality as your as your motivator um I, I you know personally i hate shirts that are all baggy around the waist that's just a personal thing um those things that come down they just they look ridiculous in my opinion. So that's probably why I love Buck Mason so much. So somebody please buy Buck Mason. Buck Mason should be so much bigger than it is. And they probably just need a, a bigger brand. But from the site, the coolest thing, for instance, on, on the project, once I finally found the Project Rock section, the coolest shirt that he's wearing is that that bull skull, skull tattoo where he's super sweaty and clearly has just done a workout you can't even find that that shirt easy and when you do the 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 page doesn't work on the website i tried it five different times it didn't work maybe that means that a gazillion people are trying to buy that that shirt too but they're still having a problem getting people to that part of the site so there's lots of very cool shoes and gym shirts and everyday apparel on there and and I'm guessing that the sales and the everyday apparel are pretty strong, which should give you an indication that if you do it right, the lifestyle, everyday streetwear, edgy apparel is a pretty interesting forward opportunity, like we talked about in the in the rest of the podcast. So lean into that part of it very hard with other different categories. And and you know, why not even right on the home site? Why not show pictures of a bunch of your athletes so people can quickly go right to those sections? It is really difficult to get to find these things. I had to go to golf to find some of the Jordan Spieth stuff, and I had to type rock to get to the rock. I mean, to me, make it easy. The, the more friction you can, rem you can remove from a, in front of a consumer, the more they act and act quickly and act frequently. And for me, just the site design the, just needs a, a and, and navigation just needs a lot of work. But, but lean into the rock and, and, all, and all the motivations that the rock uh, has because that, that's an enormous opportunity. And just bring a lot more people in and create a collective for the rock so we can all kind of join that movement. What what drives a stock is very linked to 
the things that make a brand a mega brand, right? At, at, at the very basic level, what drives a stock is having more buyers than sellers. What would compel a retail investor, an institutional investor, anybody to buy any asset versus sell that asset? And and the the high quality nature of a mega brand is really what drives this process. So, you know, with a stock down where it is, certainly there are lots of value investors that might want to buy the stock, but specifically for um, from a mega brand's perspective, think about all of the other companies that are a mega brand. And, and one of the things that I that I that I do in my brand relevancy scoring system, which remember is fifty percent quantitative, fifty percent qualitative. I, I rank all of the the prevalent operating metrics of all the brands that I that I track so I can see who's kind of rising to the top from a growth and free cash flow and better margins and better ROIs and ROEs, et cetera, et cetera. But I also track things like corporate governance and an assessment very subjective of capital allocation decisions that have been made. How good the company is at buying back stock? Are they part of an ESG focus because money is going there whether we like it or not? Some assessment of management overall and their vision. If a brand shows up on a lot of the brand relevancy, you know, the top 100 global brands list from Brand Z and Interbrands, does a company screen well and score in the top, you know, top best places to work through Glassdoor? Or are they part of Fortune's top most admired companies? Just all of those, those factors combined, plus all of the operating metrics, tend to give you a, a pretty good snapshot of a business and its superiority and its in its uh, in its peer group, and so if you look at a mega brand, there are a few characteristics that I think Under Armour and everybody in that category really should be focused on. One, do you have super high brand love? Right now, Under Armour just doesn't. That 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 can't you know that can't stay forever. It certainly has to change. But you know, at five billion in revenue, clearly somebody's buy there are people buying their products, but mostly from wholesale partners and from outlet centers, et cetera, where where you know price is driving some of those decisions versus brand loyalty and brand love. So high brand love. I mean, look at look at Apple, 92% retention rate. Uh, when we when we when it's time to buy new products, we always go back to Apple. They are certainly probably the most admired, most important, best consumer brand, best consumer staple brand that's ever been created with the iPhone. You know, it's so that that one is is a hard one to reach. But but being part of people's kind of core brand love group is is important. Being able to sell across all demographics. Do kids love your brand? Do teens love your brand? Do younger adults, millennials, uh, Gen Xers like me, do older people still still buy your brand? And, and Nike, you can say absolutely. I would say generally Under Armour has kids wearing it all the way up to older people. But again, why they're, they're, they're wearing it, what drove that purchase decision is somewhat different for Under Armour versus other ones. Do you have a global opportunity to sell your products? Clearly Under Armour has has sales across the world and they are growing across the world, but they really need to spend, you know, obviously more time 
uh, enhancing the brand so they can get some premiumization in there and some pricing power. Um, does, does the brand um, kind of allow them, is the brand strong enough to allow them to introduce new products that we also have to consume? You know, we had to have maybe a Mac for Apple um, or Lulu. You know, my wife had started off with those leggings, but now she gets so many other different products while still refreshing her leggings. You know, has Under Armour delighted us enough with with the base layer stuff to get us to want to buy shoes or to get us to want to buy other things. And, and, and for some people that's true. So, but, but the more, again, that, that feeds right back into the brand loyalty. If, if I need more stuff and I love Under Armour, that's the first place that I'm going to go. And, and, and listen, I'm a pretty brand loyal guy, but, but I'm, even when I'm looking for shoes, I'm not so brand loyal to one brand that, that I won't look around. I tend to skew Nike and Adidas first. 99.9% .9 of the time when I need something athletic wear, it's probably going to be there. And a little bit, I'm getting really intrigued by Viore. Uh, I don't love the price points, but the quality is pretty dang good. I, it would shock me if they aren't already fielding some some acquisition uh, you know, conversations. But um those are are some of the things that make uh, a mega brand that that allow a company to reach for much bigger market caps and much bigger growth because if you can if you have lots of product opportunities super high brand love the ability to sell to every every human being around the world and keep having them come back to your products you you got lots of opportunities for for big market caps witness uh, Amazon, Apple, Microsoft, and Google with over a trillion dollar market cap. So, and obviously Nike, uh, a huge mega brand at, at you know, with 46 billion in sales. So then the next part of this is, let, let's just conclude this a little bit. Overall, Under Armour stock has been in a death spiral since 2016. Brand relevancy has been falling right along with it, probably causing part of this 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 loss in the stock, even at a time when revenues have been fairly stagnant between the four and the five and a half billion dollar range. So, so yes, the valuation required super growth, and that's since been reset. I think that part of it is already uh, is already done. The business operations are getting much better. I'm 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 actually surprised the I think his name was Patrick Frisk that he's leaving. I don't know if that was his decision or or Under Armour's decision, but it seems like he was getting the you know the company's house in order from a business perspective um which is which was obviously a big piece of the problem. So who knows exactly why he's leaving and and now they've introduced more uncertainty in finding a new permanent CEO. I certainly believe, in, in my opinion, if I were making decisions, the new CEO would be very high profile, incredibly motivational, um, incredibly edgy and loud and, and having the ability to be bold. Um, maybe even somebody that's a recent, uh, highly popular, recent retired sports person or 
you know, somebody who, I mean, if you have a good operator, then you, then your CEO doesn't have to be both things. Your CEO can be, you know, a very vocal cheerleader that understands the, and has a great view of the vision of the, of the, the company with a great operator to make all the operations uh, meet those, those long-term visions and goals. So um, what, what I think management really needs now is to admit, at least internally, I certainly haven't seen it externally, that they do have a brand problem. And you can't fix your brand image by just creating new products, right? It, I, I am not, they could have the sexiest new shoe in town, but unless I'm getting hit over the head every single day with marketing to make me at least want to go touch and feel it and, and put it on, uh, I'm not gonna care about the new product. And and if the brand is still has no no brand heat, no real key brand relevancy, I'm a vain guy, right? I, I like having, I'm a brand focused guy. So if I don't think the brand is cool, then it doesn't matter if the shoe's really cool or the, or the apparel's really cool. I'm gonna use that brand for very, you know, low priced, you know, uh, 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 unimportant apparel and probably not gonna buy the shoes. So the brand is the most important in retail with consumers. And that, in my opinion, is the biggest problem. It's not products. Products can be created. New designers can be can be hired. It's the brand that matters the most. In fact, it's the probably the first question I would ask if I had the ability to talk to to the management team and and Kevin in particular to talk about the brand. Obviously, they're not going to come out in public and say, "Hey, man, our brand just is is just has lost its relevancy." We get that. At least I haven't heard that. Um, but but the world knows it. The stock knows it. Probably the internal managers know it just from their margin profile and and where they're getting their sales from. They kind of know the brand isn't sexy anymore, and that needs to change. The one of the other things that I would do is I would cleanse the board almost entirely. There are a ton of people, and I am sure that all, every single person on the board has a very specific reason for being on the board, and I'm sure it was very well thought out. I just don't get it. Um, I mean, Mohammed El Arian, I, I have an enormous amount of respect for from PIMCO. Great on the oversight and governance, I'm sure. Great macro investor to give the company some good inclination of when you know what's in store for the world and how they might benefit from it or pull back spending etc um but then there's a bunch of other people on here that that seem to come from irrelevant brands great that they have cmo experience or branding experience or you know sales experience or diversity but if you didn't come from a highly relevant, highly successful brand, then how are you going to add much value to a brand that's trying to become the brand that it once was? There are people on here from Dockers, an irrelevant brand. And listen, I'm sure they do tons of sales, but if you're wearing Dockers, you ain't cool. And if Under Armour's trying to be cool, then somebody from Dockers and Levi's probably isn't going to add value to the, to the company. I'm sure that they have good ideas, but if you were successful at a brand that became irrelevant or never was relevant, to me, that's just not as exciting. I mean, they have somebody here from, from Yum Brands. I mean, Pizza Hut and, and Taco Bell. 
Like, I don't even know what, I don't even know what this person might add. I know they have some, 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 uh, some interesting experiences, but to me, that's a, that's a huge focus and bring people in, just get some young people with vigor, some sports and fitness experts, some high-end apparel um, and footwear experience and some, some people with experience on fashion and lifestyle apparel even some sports psychology or coaches, you know, coach K is just retiring from Duke. He'd be a great person for, for the board at Under Armour because part of the branding and the messaging has to come from the, some sports psychology and motivation, get some digit, some advertising, some PR, some branding experience, whether it's from a brand organization or a, you know, a, 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 a very, you know, gangster CMO, from from a, a another relevant brand you need that you need that experience digital and retail somebody who knows uh ai and data aggregation and data analysis and how you can create this customization engine for people on the technology side uh and then you know differentiated store build outs as well so there's a lot they can do on the on the board that I think that they're they're really not getting what they should be getting out of the current board that's just my own personal opinion again I'm sure these are all lovely people and there's a reason for them being there I just don't see it as an outsider uh, another thing is I still think they can they have more work to do on cutting some 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 undifferentiated skews uh, around footwear and apparel and and all of their money and their time and their resources should be spent on product innovation with an edgy, loud, differentiated, premium price focus. Maybe even having some limited batch, you know, create something sexy, create a limited batch, you know, do some membership focus where, where it, you can only get this product if you, that's in high demand with really great messaging, if you're a member. Um, eventually when the brand is really superior, you can charge for that subscription or membership strictly for limited batch items, but there's something you got to do to drive some more premium, uh, and, and pricing power. Then let's just dig into some sort of technology and customization on the site and on the app. Uh, they have a little bit of it for you to really narrow in with filters to use, uh, to use those filters, to drive you into what you want. But, but get a lot deeper, allow me to self-assess, you know, pick and use pictures rather than words, you know, click which body type you have, click whether you're a male or you're a female, what your age group is, um, what you're trying to accomplish, what you're, you know, are you a, um, a pop culture person? Are you more of a business type? You know, all of those personality types can be matched with the kind of, of apparel and footwear that you likely want to uh, likely want to be a part of. Because let's face it, most men in particular, we don't care that much and we don't have much fashion sense. It's our wives and our girlfriends who tend to help us with that. And so if you can, using technology, if you can help us drive into the things that are going to make us as cool as we can be, then we're going to stay more loyal to you and, and we're going to do more work and more, uh, more buying with your brand. And you're going to have us for a much longer period of time. 
I would love to help build some of that stuff. I mean, and then I think you need to expand in a very big way into that everyday differentiated premium lifestyle and streetwear category. You're already an apparel business. That's where the bulk of your revenue comes from. Let's get some new designers. Let's get some new innovation and lean into that apparel because that apparel business is so much less com uh, competitive where you can actually take a lot of market share from a lot of brands who are still doing a lot of business, but really don't have a ton of brand heat or brand relevancy or brand sexiness. You, you could double your revenues over three years easy, in my opinion, strictly from creating some cool things from street shoes all the way up to, to baseball caps and, and, and et cetera in that lifestyle brand and use an edgy message. Lean into a lot of the things that The Rock is doing not not necessarily from a fitness perspective, but from a mentality perspective, a sports mentality perspective, conquering all of your demons, um, you know, running through brick walls, being successful as a dad, as a parent, as a human being, as a professional. Get me to buy into this, this kind of Under Armour constitution of what a, being a good human being is. Let me stand for what you stand for and build products that are edgy and let me, let me, you know, let me have some freedom to express myself through your apparel and through your footwear. In, in some cases, let me even customize. I, let me put some things that I want to put on my shoes or on my apparel um, in, 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 a, in a scalable way. Obviously, you can't do that for everybody. So there's just a lot more ways to get closer to the end user by really letting them tell you what you what they want from you and delivering that through your brand messaging. But again, the most important thing is doing a full brand reset. It all starts with the brand when your brand has low heat and low relevancy. And that costs money a lot in some cases. It costs a lot of time and a lot of resources, but the, the upside is enormous and the downside is enormous for the brand. So, you know, it's it's very difficult, again, to compete with with big companies with big spend. So fighting for scraps isn't where you want to be. You want to carve out a new niche with a new brand message. And, and if you do that, you are going to be a, a much bigger brand than you are currently. And again, I've said it before, if you get it right, the upside in Under Armour stock is way bigger than Nike, Lulu, Adidas, et cetera, simply because the, the brand has fallen so far, the market cap is so low, but they still touch and reach lots of, of people around the world. So man, as, as a guy who loves brands and brand building and, and the athleisure category, gosh, I'd, I'd love to go work for this company to really help them turn the brand around. Given where the stock is and what the brand relevancy is currently, um, if you really had buy-in from management to to really make a big spend on premium products and and setting the brand right, I'd take 100% stock because I'd make a gazillion dollars just on the stock appreciation. So I really hope that they get the message. Um, again, I don't see the evidence on the brand changing um, that would really warrant me to get engaged in the stock. I may, you know, it's certainly sufficiently cheap to get me excited to take a, you know, put a, a, a few fingers in the, in the water, so to speak, from, from a stock perspective, but to really get engaged with the stock in a meaningful way, all of us investors are going to need a reason to buy the stock. 
Remember, stocks go up because more buyers than sellers happen. And to get more buyers than sellers in this particular industry, in this particular brand, there's a lot of things that need to change from the brand to the products to the pricing, to where you're delivering those, to how much you engage with people on a digital and app basis, to how much you can help drive new sales and repeat sales. And, and if that all occurs, man, there's a lot of upside in the stock and I'm really rooting for the team. And, and Kevin Plank, who owns a ton of stock, has the most to gain from do, from getting it right. I personally think the last thing I'll say here is I personally think they should take this thing private with a Blackstone you know I love Blackstone. It's the best asset management private equity business. They have 170 billion of dry powder to uh, to put to work. They've put their toes in a few different companies with Spanx and Supergoop, and, and they have a brand group led by a guy who came from a very key, very differentiated branding advertising firm. Johnny Bauer, I think his name is, his team would probably have a field day with the brand. So, so with a partner like Blackstone, you get a chance to, to have a team with all the resources in place to really help you turn that brand around and, and get the, the brand moving in the right direction from a revenue and margin perspective. And then you go public, you know, five years from now with two or three X the revenue and everybody makes a lot of money. That's what I would do. Right, right now you're at a you know kind of a, a a precarious part of the cycle. So doing all of this stuff in as a public company, uh, making those hard decisions might really affect your stock price when you can just take it public at five billion with a private equity partner who can help you turn it around and really make some amazing amazing headwinds uh, or uh, headway as a private company and then come out. Um, looking like a, a, the gem that you should be. Okay, everybody, hope uh, this was helpful on Under Armour. Um, we'll, uh, we'll stay tuned. Talk to you later. Thanks for listening to Mega Brands, everybody. I'm your host, Eric Clark. For more information on this podcast and to learn more about the brand relevancy scoring system we use, be sure to check out the website at globalbrandsmatter.com. While you're there, make sure to sign up for the market newsletter and check out my latest thoughts on our favorite portfolio brands in the Dynamic Brands section. If you have any questions or want to learn more about the Dynamic Brands approach, send me a message on the contact tab. Thanks again for listening, everybody. Have a great day.